How well do we really know our neighbors? Not like whether they have a birthmark or if they like Brussels sprouts, but who they are ethically, morally. It's a topic of conversation when someone new moves into a neighborhood. Have you met the new neighbors? What are they like? Conversations take place at the dinner table, in the driveway, at shared fences, over beer while manning the grill. Eventually, the conversation dies down. The main questions have been answered and we go on with our lives, feeling satisfied that the newcomer has been catalogued, labeled, quantified. In the late 1880s, news and people traveled at roughly the same rate. Letting your loved ones know you arrived at your new property to set up housekeeping and establish your family in a new place could take days, unimaginable by today's standards of wireless immediate communication. Meeting new neighbors might also be a slow process over seasons, especially in farming communities where there's no shortage of work to occupy your time. Is your neighbor at the next parcel of land just shy? Poor social skills? Maybe they're just really private or just a little odd. Eugene Butler was one such neighbor, and he proved to be more than just a little quiet or a tad bit strange. He proved to harbor a dark secret within his very home, a secret that would shock his community and beyond. Born in Niagara, New York in 1849, the third of six children, he worked as a farm laborer in his early adulthood before setting out for the Dakota Territory in 1882. A bachelor farmer, he purchased several parcels of land northwest of Laramore, near a small settlement named Niagara. By the time North Dakota officially became a state, in 1889, he owned and worked 480 acres, hiring farmhands in Laramore for each growing season and hunkering down for each bitter northern winter alone. He lived as a miser and recluse for several years, following the same seasonal patterns of only hiring workers on for the growing season and choosing to do all the house chores himself rather than hire on a housekeeper. He was reported to be popular enough and well-liked, though he preferred a more solitary lifestyle. As the years passed, he began to exhibit unusual habits, such as riding his horse at breakneck speed around the town in the middle of the night, sometimes also yelling at the top of his lungs. He began to claim that men had been coming to visit him late at night, insisting he get out of bed, get dressed, and go for long walks or horseback rides. Another claim he put forward was that all of the widows and old maids around wanted to marry him, especially in a leap year. Eventually, 
These odd behaviors and assertions landed him in the State Insane Asylum at Jamestown, North Dakota, in 1904. Back in these days, mental illnesses were only described and classified in a primitive way, as were treatments. At the time of Eugene Butler's entry into the asylum, there were seven conditions listed as cause for involuntary commitment. Mania, which could come from euphoria, delusions, and hyperactivity. Melancholia. Monomania, which is simply mania with an obsession over one specific thing. Paresis, otherwise known as partial paralysis. Dementia. Dipsomania defined as alcoholism with obsessive cravings, and epilepsy. Common practice for the time was the quote-unquote insanity board, where a panel of doctors evaluated cases submitted to them for review. Family members could recommend someone be reviewed, or neighbors or other witnesses may also submit complaints and give testimony. Based on Eugene's reported behaviors, it's likely he was diagnosed with mania on the strength of his neighbor's testimony. To reinforce his miserly reputation, he was reported to have had $4,600 in cash on him when the board committed him. That's just over $151,000 today. He was committed in 1904 and by all reports was a pleasant and agreeable patient. He even developed a rather passionate affection for one nurse, which was unrequited, and resulted in a bit of teasing from her fellow staff members. Eugene Butler only had but a handful of years remaining in his life, and passed away on October 22, 1911. But the true mystery of this bizarre figure was only just about to begin to unfold. A law firm from Buffalo, at the direction of his siblings, had been administering his farm holdings, renting the farm and hiring laborers, until other arrangements became necessary. Upon his death, his siblings divided the proceeds of the sale of his farm, and that should have been the quiet end of this story. But it's not. It took a few years to sell such a large plot of land, worth roughly $1 million today. When excavation began in 1915 for a new home's foundation at the old home's site, workers were astonished to find human bones buried three feet down in the clay soil. The old house had a hidden trap door opening into the crawl space underneath. The bones were a complete skeleton of a male buried naked since no traces of shoe material clothing or even buttons were found in the surrounding soil. After this shocking discovery, the rest of the old home's foundation was inspected for any other anomalies. Along one side, they discovered the foundation had been disturbed, and another set of remains were discovered, followed by another, and another, and another, and another. Five more bodies pulled from beneath where Eugene Butler spent so much of his time isolated away from the outside world. 
Early newspaper reports described all six bodies discovered as adult males, but more careful investigation revealed the grouping of five bodies all discovered together was likely a family. Adult, male, and female with three juveniles. All five were buried at a slanted angle, and both adults had their legs broken in order to fit in the allotted space. As with the first male body, no traces of shoes, clothes, or buttons were found in the soil. Each of the six victims had a sharp, clearly defined hole in the left side of the skull made by a sharp instrument. Analysis of the soil layers and patterns of disturbance concluded the bodies had been under the house for approximately 15 to 20 years. After the initial shock of the discovery, the questions began. Who were they? Where did they come from? Why did Eugene kill them? Did he just snap? Did he catch potential thieves trying to steal his money? He was known to be tight with a dollar. Did he overreact to the natural curiosity of children snooping around on his land? Did one of his hallucinations suggest the idea? None of the neighbors reported any suspicions he mentioned, aside from the assertion that widows and old maids pursued his hand in marriage. But also, no one in the community knew of a man who had gone missing let alone a family of five. The only lead ever suggested was an inquiry from Leo Urbanski about his younger brother, John Urbanski. John had written home last in 1902, saying he was working for a bachelor on a farm in Niagara. The letter had been mailed from Larimore. It was the last communication Leo had from his brother. Forensic investigation has changed a lot in the last century. Now, crime scenes are cordoned off during evidence collection to prevent tampering or outright destruction of evidence by onlookers, whether intentional or by accident. In 1915, by contrast, once the neighbors found out the shocking turn of events and it was printed in the newspapers, people began coming to take a look. Some took more than a look, however. A local news station reported in 2016 that the bones of the six victims weren't stored at the Grand Forks County Sheriff's Office as had been originally reported, but had been looted by townsfolk during the investigation of the home site. Unless some of those bones are located and returned, it's extremely unlikely we will ever know the identities of the victims, but considering it's been so long, hope has more than dwindled. Had the mania begun before the murders, or was it guilt that fractured his mind? Did his sanity slowly slip away during the bitter North Dakota winters? Were the murders crimes of passion precipitated by suspected theft, triggering rage? Was paranoia about being stolen from the reason he was carrying a fortune in his pockets when he was committed? Did Eugene act alone? Had he had any hand in it at all? It's highly unlikely that any of these questions will ever be answered. 
but the only way to keep hope alive is to talk about these kinds of cases, such as Eugene Butler, and to occasionally ask ourselves an important question. Are you sure you really know your neighbors? That's all for this time. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. If you're into dark and mysterious content like this, be sure to check out my other videos, as I've got tons more in store for you, because you won't want to miss what's next. And if you're looking for some more scares, my analog horror series Greylock is linked in the description below. A warning, however, it's not for the faint of heart. So thanks again for watching. I'm Rob Gavigan, and I'll see you next time. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute... It's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.